Well, I say good morning to everyone. Good to see you all here. And it is good to be back and preaching again. We had a very good time in Phoenix, but it's good to be back here. And I'm very thankful to our friends at Trails Church, to Aaron and to Charles, who covered for me while we were away. Uh, I noticed we were heavy on Matt Boswell songs this morning, and I don't know if Don or anyone else mentioned it uh, two weeks ago, uh, but Matt Boswell, the songwriter, is actually Aaron's older brother. So you were one degree from greatness <laughs> here two weeks ago. And I, I listened to Aaron and Charles's messages, and they were very good, and I'm very thankful uh, that we have friends and a network of churches that's starting to find its way uh, in Manitoba uh, that is committed to a gospel-centered uh, approach, uh, an unashamed uh, passion to teach the Word of God and to create a family atmosphere. We are in a time of great shaking, I think, where things are unsettled. Uh, God does these things periodically. Uh, in Hebrews 12, we read, uh, about a shaking that God sends so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. And I do believe we are in a time like that in history. Uh, God is clearly shuffling the deck uh, in the church world, and we want to be on the right side of that by his grace. And so, as Don said, we want to build a culture here that is warm, that is inviting, uh, that is family, uh, has a family feel to it, and yet at the same time that is unapologetic and unafraid uh, to preach the word of God straight up. And that is, by God's grace, what we want to do here this morning as well. So I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. And I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy 3, 14 through 16, and these are the words of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, So that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So we're picking up in our series again. I believe Aaron and Charles both were preaching from 2 Timothy, so not far away from what we're doing. Uh, But we're back in our series here now in 1 Timothy. Uh, And the reason, again, that we chose this book is because there's so much instruction in 1 Timothy for how to establish a healthy church. Last week, or not last week, but three weeks ago, our last message in the series, we talked about elders and deacons and about church governance and how that ought to work. And today we're going to be looking at the nature of the church herself. What is the church and what is our job in the world? And we get right into it here in verses 14 and 15. Paul says to his student Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And so remember, we're... Reading this book, we're we're kind of reading Timothy's mail, although it's certainly applicable to us. It's not written directly to us. It's written to Timothy. Uh, And we are at this unique juncture in church history where authority for the church is moving from the apostles to regular, everyday elders and deacons. Okay, And so it's a unique period in history. Paul was the last apostle 
that God gave to the church. And he is nearing the end of his life, and he wants to make sure uh, that the apostolic truth that Christ delivered to the apostles is going to carry on, and that carries on in the legacy of his word. This is where we find uh, the apostolic truth is deposited, is in the word of God, in the Bible. Uh, And so he is instructing Timothy on how to keep uh, the truth of the gospel, how to keep the, the truth of Christ front and center as he takes over this church in Ephesus. And he's in Macedonia on a missionary journey as he writes this letter to Timothy. Uh, And Timothy is in charge of pastoring this church in Ephesus. And Paul is in the place of an advisor to Timothy, not just because he's older and more experienced as a church planter, but also because he was chosen by God to be an apostle. And so when we are reading the words of Paul, what we're also doing is reading the words of God. Okay, this isn't an either or. If you're reading Moses, you're reading God. If you're reading Paul or Peter, you are reading God. These are God's words. Uh, And he especially anointed these men to write down his words for him. And so, by God's grace, we're able to read Timothy's mail and make application of it uh, in our own time and in our own place. Verse 14, Paul says that he's writing these things to the church. Well, and what are these things? Well, let's stop and think about this for a bit. Uh, The chapter and verse divisions you have in your Bible are not part of the original text. The apostles never wrote chapter and verse divisions. We did that. Uh, And it's a helpful thing for us so we can locate certain passages of Scripture. Uh, And it's very useful, and we can be thankful for those men who did this. And it started in about the 1400s that we had chapter and verse divisions to help us find stuff. The downside is, when we have chapter and verse, what can happen in our minds is that we start to isolate verses. Right? We, we, we see this as a separate little body of truth, and then there's this other separate little body of truth. Uh, and we can sometimes see Bible verses as like pieces of a puzzle, but we don't know how the puzzle all fits together. But the, the, this letter, as it came to Timothy, was one letter. So when Paul is talking about these things, he's not just talking about the next verse or the next three verses or the last two verses. He's talking about the whole letter, because this is how it came to Timothy, is one letter. Right? And th- this isn't rocket science. If you read a book... Uh, If you read a novel, we would never approach any other book and just take one sentence out of a Tom Clancy novel and treat it as though this is unrelated to the whole story, right? Every sentence belongs to the bigger story. Every verse in the Bible belongs to the bigger story of the Bible. So use those chapter and verse divisions helpfully, but don't let it uh, create categories in your mind that we can chop and dice the word of God into these little pieces. We can't. It's one letter, and so the whole body of truth that Paul is giving to Timothy is included in these things that he is writing about. In verse 15, the church is equated with being the household of God. And the household of God is the same thing as the church of the living God. You see how it's used interchangeably here. And this household language indicates kind of two things. First of all... uh, A household is where God lives. So this is the place where God resides and rules. And in the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament history, God often kind of limited the the picture of his presence. Of course, God was everywhere. He's always been omnipresent. But uh, for the worship of his people, he kind of isolated his location to one spot, be it the ark or be it the tabernacle or eventually the people had a temple. And so God is kind of confined to one place in terms of worship. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20, we're familiar with this language where Paul calls our body a temple, right? And we usually do something with that and think, okay, well, you know, I I picture myself as a kind of a bronze god, right? Not me, but some of you maybe. 
Uh, and so, you know, we shouldn't do unhealthy things. We shouldn't overeat. We shouldn't, you know, smoke. We shouldn't do this and that and, and so forth. And, and there's certainly truth to that. But there's much more significance to that. If our body is a temple and God resided in the temple in the Old Testament, where does he reside today? In us. Okay? In us. God is not confined uh, that we have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to find God. He's here. He's here right now with each and every one of us. And so the significance of our body being a temple is that God is present everywhere now, wherever his church is gathering. And so the... uh, the important thing to take away here isn't where we meet, but that we are meeting as God's people. Okay? And in many climates around the world, most especially in Manitoba, we do actually need a building for that to happen effectively. But the location doesn't make or break it. For, for instance, even a farm shop can be a suitable place for God's people to meet. And that said, as Don prayed this morning, we're at a place where It would be nice to have a dedicated building with classrooms and a kitchen and and so forth. And so we can pray that God would uh, would lead us to something along those lines. There's not a rush, but it would sure be nice if we could find a building with a dedicated use for this church body. But household also means another thing. So it's, it's first of all where God resides, but household also reminds us that we become the family of God. There's a focus on us here as well. And we need to think carefully about this. There is a universal church which is comprised of all true believers across the globe. So the universal church includes those believers that were living in France in the 8th century, okay, and in Rome in the 2nd century, and in China today. This is the universal church, God's big church across time and across history and places. But that universal church also has expression all across the map. And it's inconsistent for us to be, want to be part of one of those churches without being part of the other church. If we claim that we're part of God's big universal church, without plugging into a real-life local congregation, we're engaged in a fantasy. That's not possible. The church isn't just an idea, but it's an actual assembly. And the word church actually literally means assembly. Okay? It means assembly or the gathering. We have to be together. And it involves real, flesh-and-blood people who are being made new by the gospel of Jesus. And we have to be willing to get our hands dirty and become involved in a real-life church setting. And this is an important truth, and it underscores why one word that we should not have learned over the last two years is online church. Okay? We want to recognize that sometimes people are hindered from coming to church. There's people that are in nursing homes or people that are sick or your vehicle won't start. Uh, And so we recognize sometimes people can't come to church. But those exceptional cases make for very poor rules. Okay, Online church has never existed. It doesn't exist today and there is no point in the future at which it will ever exist. The church is the assembly. It's the gathering of God's people. The bride of Christ is an actual, material, real-life thing. It's not a hologram or an image. There's real-life people involved in God's church that can shake hands and give hugs and laugh and cry and encourage and admonish and look at Scripture together and pray together and sing together. And God is also pleased to give us real-life symbols, physical things that you can hold in your hands and see, like water and wine and bread. 
These are real life things. God is concerned about the physical, material nature of the world. And so should we be. Okay, so we, we shouldn't just think of ourselves as, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm plugged into the local church. Whether I'm part of a local body or not doesn't matter. That's not true. Okay, we wouldn't treat our families that way. I don't like the idea just of being a husband, or I don't like just being uh, the idea of being a dad. If I like the idea of it, I better go take time with my wife and my kids, <laughs> right? And so it is with the universal church. If we belong to Christ's universal church, there's a local expression uh, that we need to get our hands dirty with. And because the church is like a field hospital, don't be surprised when people drag mud in with them. That's what we want. <laughs> okay? This is what we want. Church is messy because we're messy. And so we, we need to be okay. If people drag their mud in, wonderful. That means we're on mission. However, problems, false ideas, false teaching often come in opposite extremes. There's often a ditch on both sides of the road. Uh, And the ditch on the other side of the road is being so focused on a local church or on a local expression that we kind of divorce ourselves from the bigger church. And when we do that, when we think about just a local assembly being the true church or the only true church, what we can do is start to become sectarian or almost cultish, right? We are the one true church and everyone else out there, they do something different than we do, so they must be bad. Right? Uh, and, and we can become very ingrown and inward looking and very narrow and start drawing people outside of the kingdom of God who, frankly, are part of the kingdom of God, uh, just in a different expression of it. Okay? Uh, part of a healthy church is having an understanding that there are brothers and sisters who come from a different stream of history uh, and the kingdom of God is big. They might be manning a different tower than you are, but we're part of the same kingdom. And so we also need to foster a gracious attitude and an appreciation of church history and why the church is what it is in its different expressions, okay? And so we need to be careful of a ditch on either side, and depending on how each one of us is wired, we're going to be more inclined to hit this ditch or that ditch, but we need to be aware of both ditches uh, and to keep it on the straight and narrow. We can become so focused with how large the kingdom is that we let our guard down for false or aberrant teaching or heresy, or worse yet, we become completely indifferent to doctrine. We become indifferent to the gospel. And this is a besetting sin uh, of those who are theologically liberal, to just fall asleep and everything goes. And we can become so focused on guarding the walls that we make the kingdom too small and we push out genuine believers just because they come from a different background than us. And this is a besetting sin of fundamentalism. And I want to suggest that if we're thinking about the household of God and what Paul is describing to Timothy here and what will follow, is that a healthy biblical conservatism has a firm grasp on Scripture so that we know the content of the gospel so well that we can discern truth from error. Right? And and, uh, my understanding, I've never been involved in this work, but my understanding is that people who are trained in uh, finding counterfeit money don't study counterfeits, right? Because there's a million variations of a counterfeit. What they do is become so familiar with the genuine thing, with the real deal, that any time they see something that looks different, it's just instinctively, okay, something's off here. That's how we need to be with the Word of God. We don't want to be heresy hunters, and that consumes us, uh, that every little thing we're looking out for. On the flip side, we need to be so comfortable, so familiar with the details of the Word of God, that if something just sits in your stomach, there's something off here, that should just be an instinctive thing, because we're so familiar with the Word of God uh, as it is. 
We need to recognize that through history, through circumstance, through location, the church has picked up various expressions through history. Uh, And so the way a second century Roman Christian might have handled a certain issue uh, might look different than a 17th century Scottish believer will have handled it. They're, They're working with the same body of truth, but the expression of that in their time and place may be different, and we need to understand that and leave some allowance for that. Okay, and, and we also need to be familiar with what kind of an issue we're dealing with. Some issues the church has always struggled with, and we shouldn't, accept, we shouldn't expect that we're going to have perfect unity today, right? So, for example, uh, the mode of baptism or the timing of baptism or the model of church government, these are things that the church has always had difference on, and so I don't think it's reasonable to expect that we're going to all arrive at the exact right answer today. We need to mature into that answer. On the other hand... There's some branches, there's some issues on which all branches of the church have always agreed, right? Even the broadest divisions of the church, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and every branch of Protestantism has always agreed on the Trinity, for example, or on what the family is, or sexual ethics. And so if we start to compromise and leave allowance for difference on those things, we're not inviting unity, we're destroying what little unity the church has always enjoyed, (laughs) You are destroying unity when you let stuff in uh, that, frankly, the church has always agreed on. And so, again, there's a ditch on both sides here uh, that we need to be careful of. And the reason we need to be careful about this, of acknowledging that there are boundaries, but that we don't make them too small, is because the church doesn't belong to us. The church does not belong to us. The church belongs to God. It is his household. And verse 15 reminds us of that. This is the church of the living God. It's God's property, and therefore we abide by his rules, not by ours. Okay, And this is precisely why we have to be aware of both ditches. It's not our kingdom to include or exclude people according to our standards. God's kingdom, God's rules. And the church here is also called a pillar and a buttress of truth, and I love that language. This is highly significant. And the image of the church here is that of a strong fortress. And this fits with much of the other biblical imagery that we have about a mountain of the Lord, the kingdom of God, God as a man of war, etc. There's confident, victorious language. The church isn't uh, some little self-help club. The church is the pillar and buttress of God's truth for the world. Okay? And one of the most tragic things in our own time, in our own culture, and this is the saddest most especially in the church, is that we have largely forgotten what the church even is and what our mission is. It's easy to think of the church as merely one part of our life or one part of the world, kind of like school or sports or work, right? And so like we would go to a biology textbook if we want to find out truths about biology, so if we want to find out spiritual truths, we go to the Bible, But this approach treats spiritual truths or the truth of God as though it's not involved in other aspects of reality, right? That treats it like here's spiritual stuff and here's the real world, right? And so if I want to go to the real world, I'll believe the secularists. But in the spiritual world, Sunday morning, behind my eyes, between my ears, that's where God is allowed to speak, right? Because now we're in the spiritual realm, not in the real world. And we let the pagans run the real world without any reference to God, And how is that working out for us? Okay? Spiritual truth is the truth at the top. All truth is God's truth. Why does math even work? Think about that. Why does math work? 
When was the council of mathematicians that decided 2 plus 3 equals 5? Did they decide that or did they discover that? Huh. I wonder why math works. Why does logic exist? Did Aristotle decide that you can't have a contradiction or did he discover that you can't have contradictions? He discovered it. Where did that come from? That A can't be B and B can't be A in the same time and in the same relationship. Why is that? How did that truth get there? Why is nature so predictable that we can make antibiotics or write a chemistry textbook? And it's, again, because God is at the top of everything. All truth meets at the top. All truth is God's truth. Mathematical truth is God's truth. Biology truth is God's truth. Okay? All truth belongs to God. He made it. Okay? We couldn't know a single thing about any field whatsoever if there wasn't a created fact by God. If God wasn't guiding those things and sustaining those things and putting meaning in them. The reason we have meaning is because God puts meaning into stuff. He's doing stuff for a reason. That's why we can discover meaning in this world. Okay? And it's not like God showed up to this universe before we got here. God just got here earlier than us. And then he found a library of textbooks and he figured, oh, okay, gravity. And he quickly read up on gravity so he knew how it should work before we got here. Okay? God made gravity. Gravity works because God is sustaining it at all times. God did not discover the laws of nature together with us or before us. The laws of nature are an expression of who God is. Okay? So there is no truth anywhere that you will ever learn about in any school or university that is not God's truth. And we have to be absolutely committed to that, that God's truth is not confined to this gathering or behind our eyes. It's for everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere. No exceptions. Every fact is a created fact. And that means that no knowledge is possible anywhere without God. And even unbelievers, if you ever talk to an unbeliever, you realize they have to steal from our worldview to make their point. Okay? They'll appeal to logic without being able to account how logic even got there. They'll appeal to evidence as though evidence is just some neutral thing, and it's not. History belongs to God. Evidence is his. And as the famous apologist Cornelius Van Til once pointed out, that the ungodly need God, they depend on God, even as they pretend to deny him. They need to sit on his lap so they can reach up high enough to slap him in the face. That's unbelief. That's unbelief. Christians need to rely on God even to deny him. And the church desperately, desperately, desperately needs to regain her confidence in her place in this world. It says here, we are the pillar and buttress of truth. Think about that. The pillar and buttress of truth. If people will not find truth in the church, where will they find it? If the church forgets our deposit that God gave us for the world, how will we expect anyone else to acknowledge reality? We often think and talk about the kingdom of God and the church as interchangeable. And because we're talking about the household of God and the church here, it's worth thinking about this. Are they identical? And there's certainly lots of overlap, but I would suggest they aren't exactly identical. The kingdom of God includes everywhere that God is operating. So science and math and politics and art and philosophy and Kevin Howard's plumbing business and this church and my farm are all part of God's kingdom. And so seen this way, everything is under the authority of God's kingdom. The question is only how visible is that kingdom to the people who are there. 
The kingdom is not confined to the walls of the church. It's over everything, including the church. And so one way we can picture this is picture a traditional village where there's the church at the center and there's the steeple reaching up to heaven and surrounding this church, there's families and homes and farms and factories and shops and libraries and a school, maybe a university, but in the middle of the town square is the church with her steeple reaching up to heaven, standing above all these other buildings. The church is at the center of the kingdom, but the kingdom is bigger than just the church. The church is like the power plant uh, that energizes, that's at the center of town and energizes the other areas as it proclaims God's law and his gospel. And it's the church's job to make the kingdom visible of the lordship of Christ over absolutely everything as it reminds all people of their duties and offers the grace offered through the gospel of Jesus. Right? So the church is like your heart pumping blood to the furthest extremities of your body. And the church doesn't need to directly do all things, but its job is to remind the whole community of what they're supposed to do. We are the pillar and buttress of truth. We need to remind everybody what our job is and how to live for the glory of God. But when the church is as lost as she is today, it's no wonder that the wheels are coming off everywhere in society. That church at the, public, at the center of the public square doesn't even know what her own job is, so how can she remind others of what their job is? if we're not the pillar and buttress of truth that we are called to be. So again, the kingdom of God is bigger than the church, but the church's job in the kingdom is to make sure that everyone remembers that Christ is Lord everywhere. What does Jesus say? All power on heaven and earth have been given to me. Right? All authority on heaven and where? On earth. Right? We frequently forget that truth. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to Jesus Christ. And Easter is a wonderful time to remember that. If a man comes out of the grave, the world can never again be the same. It just cannot. Things change. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to King Jesus. And until we have a recovery of potent biblical worship, of pulpits which are going to thunder with the truth of God's word, and families that are interested in producing and then training godly offspring, we should not expect anything different than what we're getting right now. And this truth has proven itself over and over again through history. As goes the church, so goes the world. Okay? This is true. As goes the church, so goes the world. And if you're sad about the state of our world, where does judgment begin but in the household of God? Okay? We will not expect the world to live better than the church. But what's the vision that we need to keep in front of us to keep us on mission as churches? The language of verse 15 gives a picture of strength and durability. Okay? And contrast that with our casual worship, our self-help TED Talks instead of sermons, our undisciplined and immoral living, our habit of coming to church as long as nothing important comes up on Sunday morning, right? How often do we do that? Nothing important is happening this morning. I guess we can go to church. If we're doing that, we either don't catch on to what the Bible is teaching and we need to be reminded, or it's also possible that we're acting like the serpent and we understand, but we're left with this question of God really means it or not. For years, the church has been narrowing the rule of Christ and the truth of the Bible just into the church alone. We've confined it, we've limited it to the church. Leaving the world, leaving our families, leaving our work, everything else to operate by its own principles. 
We've had a defeatist and escapist attitude that the world is just going to go from bad to worse, the church is almost going to disappear, and then when God looks at the world like our politicians looked at the Vietnam War and decided this is an unwinnable battle, he sends the helicopters to Saigon to remain, to pull out whatever few people are left. We're getting what we're aiming for. It's like a hockey team that expects to lose before they step on the ice, and then they play like losers. Should they be surprised if they're trailing the entire game? I would suggest they should not be. They're getting what they're aiming for. The pillar and buttress of truth language sends us in the exact opposite direction. And put it together with what Jesus says. Remember that account uh, where Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, he confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then Jesus makes a little play on words on Peter's name, which means rock. And he says, you're right, Peter. And on this rock, on your confession, on what you just said, that I am Lord over all, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. At first glance, some of us may look at these gates of hell not prevailing And we conclude that no matter how tiny the church gets, no matter how small a ghetto we've kind of retreated to, at least it won't be snuffed out entirely. But look closer. The gates of hell. A gate is a defensive weapon, not an offensive one. You don't run out into a battlefield holding your gate. right? Your gate is your last line of defense. Once the gate comes down, the enemy is on inside. They've infiltrated, and it's a matter of time until the cleanup operation is done. And writing in his book, uh, A Primer on Worship and Reformation, Douglas Wilson comments on this about our worship. As we gather in the presence of God on the Lord's Day, he is pleased to use our right worship of him as a battering ram to bring down all the citadels of unbelief in our communities. Just as the walls of Jericho fell before the worship and service of God, so unbelievers tremble when Christians gather in their communities to worship their God rightly. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. It is not often noted that the gates of hell are not an offensive weapon. Hades is being besieged by the church. It is not the other way around. We need to learn to see that biblical worship of God is a powerful battering ram. And each Lord's Day, we have the privilege of taking another swing. Isn't that a different image than the escapist, retreatist image that we often have? When we gather here, dear people, we are grabbing hold of that battering ram and taking another swing at the gates of hell. And Jesus promised that those gates will not withstand it. One day, all heaven is going to break loose. We are, that is our job as a church, to besiege the gates of hell. Not to just cling on desperately, hoping we make it, but to make advance. To think positively about what God's purposes for his creation are. And if we're able to see the church as Paul here describes it to Timothy with this strong, victorious language, or as Christ describes it to Peter, how can we lose confidence in our mission? Why would we ever fear man? Why would we take a defeatist or an escapist mindset to our work or to our families or to our worship? Why would we let our worship or our preaching become goofy or shallow? Why would we replace sermons with skits or story time? Why would we replace rich, confident singing from our bellies with a dance team and lasers and smoke? Why would we do this? Only because we've lost confidence in God's purposes and we need to replace it with some kind of innovation. That's the only reason we would do it. We need to have confidence in God and in the worship that he calls for. 
And it's not uncommon in our time that people think that doctrine is going to splinter the church. But the exact opposite is the case, as we will soon see. Indifference to doctrine sets everyone else up to do right in their own eyes. We lose focus of our mission when we uh, don't take doctrine seriously, because then all we're left with is our own vision. This is my idea. I think this is good. I think that's good. And you get 200 people like that. Are you going to expect unity, or are you going to expect splintering? Okay? Doctrine is, uh, if done properly, is the source of our unity, not an opponent to unity. As we're soon going to see in verse 6, a shared doctrinal vision, a shared doctrinal commitment, that confession that we're about to read, is the vision and the basis for keeping the household of God together and to keep us on good behavior and unified in our mission to be the pillar and buttress of truth that we are called to be as God's people. And in fact, Paul exactly moves on to this next. So read along in verse 16, and you'll see in your Bible the way these verses are put together. This is in the form of a, a confession And we don't know whether this is a hymn or a creed or or how this was exactly put together, but we know this isn't original to Paul. This was clearly something that the church was confessing, and he makes appeal to it, whether it's a song or whether it is a creed. And he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul has just reminded Timothy about the church as the nuclear power plant of the world, powering the rest of the kingdom to make manifest and to see, to give us eyes to see what God is doing in his kingdom. The church is front and center, acting as the pillar and buttress of truth. Great. What truth? Well, that's what he goes on to tell us here now. The vision that keeps the church together here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that the church possesses is a form of confession. And Paul calls this a mystery, and indeed it was, but that mystery existed in the Old Testament, and now it has been made clear enough that he can put it in spoken word. Uh, And the great theologian B.B. Warfield talks about these mysteries in the Old Testament, these types and shadows, and, you know, what's the meaning of of taking an unblemished lamb and cutting it, and, and your little girl asks you every year when daddy does this, daddy, why are you doing this? And it makes no sense until all of a sudden the lamb of God appears, And we realized why those hundreds of years of dress rehearsal and killing these little lambs was so important. Okay, Why was Abram asked to sacrifice his one and only son on a mountain? It makes no sense. Until 1,400 years later, God crucifies his one and only son on that exact same mountain. These things start to make sense. This is the mystery that is being revealed. These types and shadows from the Old Testament all of a sudden come into focus. And B.B. Warfield talks about this as though it's like a study in his office. All the books, all the furniture, everything's there. But in the Old Testament, the blinds are drawn and there's no lights on. And the difference with the New Testament isn't that things have changed. Okay? It's the same body of truth. The Old Testament is the word of God right now, today. Don't listen to those men who would want to unhitch the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God right now. The difference is, because of Christ, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, somebody pulled up the blinds. Somebody turned on the lights. And what was always there is now in plain sight. What was a mystery is now revealed, and we can put it in the form of a little creed here that Paul gives us. And so Christ is the culmination and the termination and the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was leading God's people towards. 
It says here he was manifest in the flesh, right? So Christ has no beginning. Christ was there. The Son of God was there at the beginning, at creation. So he wasn't created in the flesh. Rather, he was manifested in the flesh. This is careful language. But it's in the flesh. He's a real man with real skin, real fingernails, real hairs, and a real digestive and nervous system. And he's vindicated by the Spirit, right? And as, as we approach Easter, we know that an ungodly court gave an unjust verdict and sentenced an innocent man to death. And of course, in God's purposes, in that and through it and under it, God is putting the sins of his people on this one man. But that doesn't absolve the human actors from what they were doing. They really intended evil. Pilate and everyone else who was involved. So while God's actions in Christ's death are just and holy, the human judgments involved in Christ's death were wicked and corrupt. And by raising Christ back to life through the Spirit, God is simultaneously saying that he is satisfied with the payment his son has made for sin, and he is overturning the ruling of a lower court. Christ's resurrection is proof that Herod and Pilate have no authority over Jesus Christ. Their court decision is rendered impotent by God's final court of appeal. Death cannot have the final say over a righteous man. He is vindicated. Then he is seen by angels, right? So even the resurrection isn't the last word. Having conquered death, Christ lives on earth again for 40 days, and then he ascends back to heaven. And according to Acts 1, when he ascends, there's a coronation ceremony happening in heaven, joining in observance. He is seen by angels. And then he's proclaimed among the nations. And think of this. Ten days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit is sent down at Pentecost, right? And we're all familiar with Pentecost, but do we grasp its significance, Okay. Think back to Genesis chapter 11, I believe it is, the Tower of Babel. The pride of man becomes so swelled up, we are going to reach to God. We will be like God, right? says every generation, including ours. And what does God do? He confuses them with languages. This is how languages and diversity and confusion are introduced into the world. And so the significance of Pentecost isn't just that something weird happened. There's meaning. What is God doing at Pentecost? He is reversing the curse of Babel. Okay? Read Acts 2. The, the, the tongues are not weird noises. The tongues are actual human languages. The miracle of Pentecost isn't that I can make weird noises with my mouth. It's that I just shared the gospel in Portuguese to some guy and I never learned Portuguese. That's the miracle of Pentecost. God is undoing the curse of Babel by putting it back together. He confused and divided the nations into languages. And what's he doing now? He's bringing it back together through the gospel heard in every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's proclaimed among the nations. And then he's believed on in the world. Jesus presses his kingdom parables in Matthew 13 or in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. And the gospel's aim isn't just to win an odd convert here or there. uh, And hopefully we pick up a few free agents along the way. Over time, the gospel is meant for discipling the nations. There's a vast global scope here. It's for discipling the nations. And think of Jesus' kingdom parables. It starts like a small mustard seed and turns into a large tree. Or it works like a little pinch of yeast that leavens the entire loaf. Over time, it gets out and it does stuff in the world. And the prophets in the Old Testament saw the same truth when they were promised that the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters covered the deep. Church, we have no reason to think in a retreatist or escapist mindset. Look at the language of the Bible. We can have confidence. We're going out. We're taking ground. We're not giving up ground slow as possible. 
Our job is to take ground, plant flags for the kingdom of Christ as we go out, as we evangelize, as you go into your workplace, as you raise your kids, as we fund world missions. This is the point. Plant flags for the kingdom, make new colonies, make outposts, make the kingdom of God visible. And then finally, he's taken up in glory. Christ is exalted when he takes his throne at the Father's right hand in Acts chapter 7. And we read this in many of the Psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, These are the most repeated Psalms in the entire Bible. Uh, Let's not have a different emphasis than those. The emphasis is on the victory of Christ as he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father and rules the nations until he makes all his enemies his footstool. That is a recurring theme in the Bible, and we should not miss it. And so this little confession that we get here, this little six-line creed, is a rich, dense summary of the whole story of redemption put in a form that's easy to remember. You can sing it, you can repeat it, it's easy to remember, and this is how creeds and confessions uh, ought to function. And music is powerful for getting God's truth into our words as well. So what does that mean for those of us who are here this morning? Well, hopefully, first and foremost, we get a clear picture of what the church is and what her task is. Behaving in the household of God requires us to create a culture of obedience and grace. Because this is new, this church is a little baby. We have an opportunity to build thoughtfully from scratch. No rental work is required. No teardown is required. We have it easy. And we're going to make mistakes. But let's not do that intentionally. Okay? We need to rely on God's grace and have a laser-sharp focus now so we can build this right at the beginning, all by God's grace. We've started talking about baptism. We're going to have baptism classes here for those who are interested after the lunchtime. We are looking at communion on Good Friday. And these are both signs and symbols of the unity and of the bonds in the church family. We're also working on stuff like working through our statement of faith in a church constitution. And all these things, we want to demonstrate the truths that we've just learned here. And so this is why, rather than writing a new confession of faith, reinventing the wheel, we want to recognize the unity that we have with God's people through history. And so we are going to acknowledge uh, the work that God's people have done through her history. Right? Some of you come from a tradition where you may repeat the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Definition in church, uh, and those are early creeds that hammered out the very same truths that we just read about here in verse 16. And so we don't want to divorce ourselves from that. We want to see unity in the church that has confessed these things through her history. In a spirit of openness and unity, we also want to practice open communion, which means communion is not just for those who are baptized here or who plan to become members here at some point in the future once we are ready for that. Rather, it's for any Christian who has been baptized into a gospel-believing church that preaches the true gospel of Jesus. This is a meal of unity. Christians shouldn't fight over a meal of unity. But we also want to be clear about important things that are around us in an age of confusion. And this means that we also need to clarify more than what's just in these ancient creeds. We want to work through the London Baptist Confession, which is about a 400-year-old confession that has served the church very, very well. Right? That confession puts us in communion with people like the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, or John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and many men in our own day who uh, 
identify with this particular expression of Christianity. That doesn't mean all others are out, but that means this is how we understand the Bible uh, along these same lines. And so we want to work through that. And confessions should not be seen unless they're directly in the Bible. Confessions are to help us. They're to set up guardrails. Okay? They're not the Bible. They're not equal to the Bible. What they ought to be is a helpful summary of what we understand the Bible to teach to keep us from getting distracted. Okay? Uh, and if you don't think this is important, just look at any cult leader, look at any unhealthy expression of Christianity, and what will you always hear? Well, I'm just teaching the Bible. Right, you're teaching this verse in isolation without being in conversation with these other verses here. Okay? Cultists, false teachers always tell us they're just preaching the Bible. Uh, and so we do want to just preach the Bible, but some of these ancient documents help to guide and to keep our interpretation of that gospel sound. So think of a confession more like guardrails to keep you safe rather than as a straitjacket to keep you prisoner. And it also means that as we pre- prepare for communion on Friday, open communion is not synonymous with a free-for-all. Baptism is like joining a family or taking marriage vows. It's saying we want to publicly confess, we want to publicly identify with the family of God. And communion is like a family meal for those who are in the family of God and who have taken that first step. So baptism is the front door, communion is the dining room table for those who have come through that door. And we see that pattern in the Old Testament. Not everyone could come to the temple, but those who were circumcised. We want to do things in the right order. Some things mark us off that we belong, and then the next thing keeps us in communion after we have made uh, that public acknowledgement that we belong. And there are warnings in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that by not taking the supper seriously, some people died and many got sick. That's a serious warning. The Corinthian church is not taking the Lord's Supper seriously, and so many of them got sick, and some of them even died. Should we be a little bit careful about the Lord's Supper? <laughs> okay, This isn't a free-for-all. Open communion, yes. Unreflective free-for-all, no. So, we need to examine ourselves for sin in our lives. And, for those who are young children, or who have yet to be baptized in a gospel-believing church, or if there is active sin in your life that you are not working through, or if you're under discipline from another church, please let the elements go by for now. This doesn't mean you're a second-rate Christian. It just means that we approach the Lord's Supper on his terms so that we aren't guilty of taking it lightly. We want to do the right things in the right order. And if you aren't sure about your own situation, probably best is to make a judgment of caution and to let it go by. Or if you have questions, come talk to one of us and we can work through it. But we do want to practice open communion that is also reflective communion that helps us to examine our own hearts and make sure we don't have things out of whack with our brothers and sisters. And so by God's grace, as we nurture this baby, as we feed this little baby, this church, we want this to grow into a healthy expression of God's kingdom in this area, to proclaim the broadness of the gospel and also to be clear on Bible teaching. Right? And, and so often, those churches that are warm and welcoming tend to get soft doctrinally, and they cease to be churches at a certain point. And likewise, some churches that are so strong on doctrine start to become heresy hunters, and we try to make the kingdom as small as we can, and, and if a church of three must be much more pure than a church of seven, so let's make it as small as possible. These are both mistakes we want to avoid. We want to say yes to broadness, to the bigness of God's kingdom. 
to understanding that God has worked differently in different nations and through different uh, eras in church history. So yes to the broadness of the kingdom. Also yes to uh, we want to go where the Bible leads us and nowhere else. We do not want to make compromises with the spirit of the age. And by God's grace, each one here plays a role in creating that kind of a culture, that kind of an environment. And so with that, I will close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for what you are doing here. Lord, you have uh, given birth to a little baby that has so much future and so much potential. And we want to thank you for what you have already done at Trinity Fellowship. Lord, far exceeding our expectations. We want to thank you for each person, each family that's here. Lord, each of us has our own journey that got us to this point. But Lord, by your grace, we cry out, we are desperate. Lord, if we do this, it will fail. Help us, please. Lord, give us the grace to see the broadness of your kingdom, to see the bigness of your kingdom, to have a warmth and a spirit of invitation uh, and of inviting unbelievers to know your gospel. Lord, and if there are any unbelievers here this morning, I pray that you would soften their hearts, help them to see your kingdom. Lord, and that they would turn and repent and come to know you in a saving way and be part of your family, your household here on earth. Lord, and at the same time, you haven't just told us to have unity, but you have told us to have unity around a body of truth, around your gospel of your son. Lord, and give us spines of steel. Uh, give us a friendly, happy courage that can laugh and smile even in the midst of a battle, that we are happy warriors, that we make no apology for your word, for any part of it. Lord, help us to be happy warriors. Help us to know how to enjoy a fellowship meal with each other and go out into the world and make a difference to make your kingdom known. Lord, I pray that you would be with each dear one here. Give us the strength we need through this week. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, the charge is this. The church is at the center of God's plans to make his kingdom known across the whole earth. The church is large in her Uh, universal scope, but also close in her local expression. God is pleased to make the church his pillar and buttress of the truth, and he has given us his word that the gates of hell cannot stand against our advance. Because of the nature of God's household, we have to keep our eye on the mission. For this household to work well, we have to remember that God is the master. Our task is to behave as we ought and hold fast to the content of the gospel so that we may enjoy the blessing of unity with our brothers and sisters. And now receive the benediction from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Go in peace.